0: And I was like, you know, next time I got a chance to get free of him wrestling around with me and tickling me, you know, I was like, I'm gonna get away from him, run away from him. So I ran out the master bedroom and our house was, you know, shaped like a big rectangle. I ran down the hallway and I ran through our dining room out onto our balcony. And uh, I ran all the way down our balcony and back in through the other doors into the master bedroom. My dad was chasing along after me, uh, you know, ha ha ha, I'm gonna get you. And uh, I, you know, I believe because he, you know, had a few too many to drink, you know, he tripped and fell over the edge. And uh, I was already in the house and halfway downstairs. We had a two story house, and I heard my sister, who was chasing along behind my dad, let out this god awful scream. This is the Public Health Insight Podcast.
1: Hello, loyal Public Health Insight listeners. My name is Gordon, and I'm joined by the public health extraordinaires, LaShawn, Linda, and a special guest who will be introduced in due course. In our previous episodes on opioids, harm reduction, and safe consumption sites, we've touched on some health indicators at the population level and what public health can do to have the greatest impact. We've also shed light on self-harm and suicide and which populations are disproportionately affected by these negative health outcomes. The Movember Foundation has the ambitious goal of reducing the rate of male suicides by 25% by 2030, and is committed towards creating an environment where men are seen as strong for taking action to be mentally well and are supported by those around them. In this episode, we'll be taking a deeper look in the forest of the trees and highlighting the lived experience of someone who has struggled with mental illness and has found a way to engage in a path of recovery through coping, resilience, and social support systems. He is a high school science teacher and a coach in Los Angeles, California He's happily married with three amazing children and has been competing and coaching in triathlons and endurance races for over two decades. He's a strong advocate for mental health and mental awareness. Please join me in welcoming to the Public Health Insight podcast, author of the book titled Tripolar, the story of a bipolar triathlete, Tim Davis. Welcome to the podcast, Tim
2: welcome
0: Welcome thanks gordon linda you guys for having me on the show it's a a privilege and an honor to be here on your podcast
1: awesome um it's our pleasure to talk to you as well um we're a public health podcast we primarily focus on you know the big picture but a lot of times the little the, the important stories in between are missed so we're excited to share your story today
0: yeah thanks i'm excited to hopefully share some of my experience strength and hope that will help others cause that was kind of the goal when i wrote the book was I, you know I, i've kind of you guys have looked at my book and know my treacherous journey you know and if there were some dark years and I, i'm hoping that i can be a beacon of hope for other people who maybe are in some dark places now and let them know there is another side you know if you do some work and change some things you can make positive strides in your life
1: definitely and and on that note um the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration um, indicated that more than two thirds of children uh, report experiencing at least one traumatic experience by the age of 16. And some of, some of those potentially traumatic events include, you know, community or school violence, witnessing, witnessing or experiencing domestic violence, and a sudden loss or violent loss of a loved one, to name a few. So, in your case, I wanted to focus particularly on that traumatic event that you write about in your chapter one of your book um, and the name of the chapter is Falling. Uh, are you comfortable sharing that experience that involved um, your father?
0: Oh yes, uh, I'm, I'm very comfortable now. It took me many years to get there, but yeah, I'm happy to talk about it.
1: Definitely, so if you don't mind just taking us back to the moment that you describe in your book and um, touch on how like the immediate effects on you and your family
0: okay so um just a little background um i'm from a big catholic family um my mom's side was the catholic side and her parents wouldn't bless the marriage unless my baptist father would convert to catholicism Mm. and uh they went on to have seven kids and i am the third oldest of seven and uh that at the time um you know growing up with my dad he was kind of a he drank quite a bit. Um, I've learned through my own experience in Alcoholics Anonymous that you can't really label anybody else an alcoholic, but uh, he definitely drank above the average amount, kind of a heavy drinker oftentimes. Um, and uh, you know, he was he had a firm hand with discipline, and uh, maybe in the third oldest I had, uh, my, my sister was the oldest, and then my brother was the next oldest, he was a year younger than her, and he was four years older than me. And uh, he was, uh, got the brunt of my dad's kind of abuse, uh, because but he was also a very unruly child, uh, always defiant. And uh, I got the the second brunt, and I got the brunt from my brother, because when my, my dad whipped my brother, he wanted to vent, uh, I was, you know, his punching bag for many years. And uh, so just with that background information, going into this year, it was in my eighth grade year, and uh, my older brother and sister were 16 and 17 at the time, and they were at their jobs at mcdonald's you know making money because my parents had this rule if you want money to to buy designer clothes or go out you need to get a job because you know from a family of seven you know we were on uh, a budget <laughs> so if they wanted extra things they had to work for them anyway so they were at work and uh I, you know my dad had been drinking all day it was a saturday and uh, it was in august it was in the summer and uh, me and my little sister we were uh, uh 12 or 13 and 11 and we were playing chase and having tickle wars my dad having a good old time and and, uh, you know, sometimes when my dad drank, he, he tickled a little too hard and didn't realize it, you know, and it was hurting, so... Uh, and I was like, you know, next time I got a chance to get free of him wrestling around with me and tickling me, uh, you know, I was like, I'm gonna get away from him and run away from him. So I ran out the master bedroom and our house was, you know, shaped like a big rectangle. I ran down the hallway and I ran through our dining room out onto our balcony. And uh, I ran all the way down our balcony and back in through the other doors into the master bedroom. And my dad was chasing along after me, uh, you know, ha ha ha, I'm going to get you. And, uh, I, you know, I believe because he you know, had a few too many to drink, you know, he tripped and fell over the edge. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was already in the house and halfway downstairs, we had a two story house. And I heard my sister who was chasing along behind my dad and let out this God awful scream like a scream i'd never heard before and Mm -hmm. as soon as i heard that i was like oh no you know i just like thought you know know, one of both of them somebody fell over you know just and uh i was the first one down you know on the driveway he landed head first on our driveway you know from a second story balcony and uh Mm -hmm. you know he had a huge gash in his head from his forehead to the back of his head his neck was all swollen and you know he was unconscious and uh I don't think he was breathing, or if he was, it was very faint breathing. And you know, I just yelled, you know, to my neighbors, you know, just like call nine one one, get help, you know. Mm-hmm. And my mom and sister came down and just uh, I just remember a lot of panic and grief, like just yelling and screaming. And it was a pretty treacherous night. And uh, when things kind of calmed down, the ambulance got there. You know, my mom, you know, said, you know, I'm, I'm going to go in the ambulance, uh, you know, to the hospital with your father. And uh, she needed me and my sister to put my three little brothers to bed because my three little brothers were aged two, three, and five at the time. And my mom had been giving them a bath when the accident happened. So we, um, you know, kind finally calmed down. We did what my mom said, got my little brothers to bed. And then we cried together for a couple hours and we eventually fell asleep. And then uh, in the middle of the night, around 3 or 4 a.m., my older brother came home. And I was in a deep sleep finally after, you know, calming down. And, you know, praying and hoping that my dad would be all right at the hospital. And my brother ripped me out of my bed and proceeded to beat me up violently for over an hour, almost two hours. And he kind of threw me into every wall in the room and punched me in the ribs. He hit me everywhere but in the face because whenever he always beat me up, he he didn't want to leave marks on the face because then my dad would know he was beating me. And then my dad Mm. would beat him if he caught him beating me. So you know, and I always had to make up all these stories about having these accidents, you know, playing football or crashing my bike when my brother did this kind of things. And, you know, he blamed me for my father's death. He said, it's your fault dad's going to die, you know, and he was cussing and saying all kinds of stuff. I I don't want to repeat that on this podcast, but uh, it was, you know, pretty, really traumatic for me at the time, age 13, thinking it was my fault that my father died and, I carried that cross with me for many years and that led me into you know using drugs and alcohol to escape the pain of those negative feelings and uh you know it was, it was uh, it's a lot to handle at age 13 to think you're responsible for your father's death it took me a long time to realize that it was just an accident and i was just a kid it wasn't my fault Hmm. so you do
1: you almost think it made it worse that on one hand um you and your dad were kind of playing and then he ended up Um, you know, tragically, you know, tripping and falling. And then you might, even without being told, you might have blamed yourself. But now you also, on top of that, you have your brother blaming you for it. Yeah. Yeah. That must be a harder pill to swallow if if you could even swallow it at all. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it
0: was a very Mm -hmm. hard pill to swallow. I had a a real hard time with that. And I didn't realize it, but that's when I really started like self-medicating with marijuana and alcohol because I had already... Uh, been using marijuana and alcohol you know, for a few years, just here and there. Because my older brother, uh, being the good older brother he was, when he got into junior high, he started doing that stuff, and he mm-hmm. let me start doing that stuff. So I was age eight years old the first time I drank and smoked weed with him. You know, he was twelve years old doing it, mm-hmm. so I already knew the effects, and I, I enjoyed the effects. You know, so I don't believe mm-hmm. that uh, that traumatic event caused me to become an alcoholic addict. I think it's genetic, and I was born with it. But that was definitely like. And all the rehabs I've been to and, you know, the step work and therapy work I've done, they ask you if you can pinpoint an event in your life where you uh, started to use, you know, to escape negative feelings. And it was definitely Mm -hmm. the, you know, the traumatic event of losing my father and being blamed for his death when I I sought to drink and get high to escape feelings that I just didn't Mm -hmm. know how to process. And uh, my mom never got therapy for any of us either. My mom just said, mm-hmm. "The only therapy I need is a Catholic priest," <laughs> and mm-hmm. that's what said, said the same thing as The only cap- therapy you need is a Catholic priest, and uh, that was, you know, this was 1987, and uh, I don't think, you know, therapy was as, um, I guess, looked upon as. Good as it is today, right. I th- you know. I, I think back in the time, definitely in my family, you know, if you needed therapy, you, you, you know, it might be considered a sign of weakness or something. So, right. yeah, that kind of mentality and um. stigma around getting mental health help back then was worse than it is now.
2: Yeah, yeah. You you mentioned um in your book that you know not only um, did your your dad die as a result of this event but also in some ways you mentioned that your mom was never the same and in some ways you've lost her as well can you touch on that a bit
0: yeah um so my mom uh oh well, you know she lost my father that year and then a month later her father died so she lost her husband and her father within mm-hmm. you know maybe it was two months mm-hmm. but within months and uh she was stranded with seven kids ages you know two to seventeen and uh she you know she hadn't been working she was a stay home i mean she had college degrees and master degrees and even doctorate degrees but uh so now she had to go back to work and after my dad died you know there were kind of a lot of bills that were unpaid. he owed a lot of money to the irs and uh you know we almost lost the house and she worked her tail off to you know make sure we kept the house and tried to keep us in catholic schools um but that eventually became too much to afford, um, and she just worked all the time. And the, my relationship with her before that was, you know, my brothers and sisters always told me I was their favorite because I was always the brightest out of all seven kids. And I did very well in school, and I was, you know, offered the opportunity to skip several grades. But she never let me skip grades because I was the shortest one in the class, and she she wanted me to stay socially with my peers, you know. So, but um. Yeah, she worked all the time. And after that, it was just all about business. You know, she's like, she'd come home from work. She's like, did you do your homework? Did you do chores? You know, and she never had to ask me if I did my homework because I always, you know, got straight A's. But, uh, you know, and that mm-hmm. was it. You know, and then she went into her room and, you know, or she dealt with my little brothers because, you know, they were young and they still needed a lot more attention than, than a 13-year-old did. So I just felt like all through high school, our relationship was just about business when I did see her. But most of the time she was working and not even home.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I wanted to bring it back to... um the coping side of things and i know you mentioned in chapter three um called first addictions and this is important because you know almost 74 percent of adults suffering from substance use disorder in 2017 also struggled with an alcohol use disorder so if you could talk us through um you mentioned be first being addicted to sugar and then moving on to more harmful things and how it brought you to things like cigarettes and other drugs
0: um okay uh For me, I guess my experience going to many Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and Narcotics Anonymous meetings, you know, people share their story, and I, you know, and when I first was trying to get sober, I went to a lot of speaker meetings where the speakers would share for 45 minutes. And the general format is they spend 15 minutes, sometimes a little more talking about what it was like. And then they spend some time talking about what happened and what it's like today. And one of the things I identified with, with a lot of speakers, when so they talk about their first addiction, um, a lot of them, it was sugar, you know, there's the sugar in alcohol and uh, for those of us that have alcoholism and addiction and addictive personalities you know I've always said I'm a I'm addicted to anything that that is addictive (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. if I haven't tried it yet Mm -hmm. if I do try it I'll become addicted to it and sugar yeah I was a little sugar fiend I used to shoplift candy because my mom wouldn't buy me candy (laughs) and uh and then it was books um i I got really got into reading and and that was like to escape because i could lock myself in my room and just read books and get away from the abuse from my older brother and kind of get some peace and quiet from the rest of the you know house with nine people in it and seven kids you know there's it's not very quiet most of the time (laughs) so i I escaped in books was like kind of my next addiction until my brother introduced me to you know alcohol and, and marijuana and things mm-hmm. you know progressed from there because the alcohol when i started using alcohol that was when i really just felt like i was always an anxious kid mm-hmm. and when i felt drank alcohol i just you know they, in the aa that you know there's there's a i a, a reading in one of the books where you know when we first drank alcohol we, we, we felt this sense of ease and comfort and uh when i drank alcohol like all my anxiety went away and I just felt like things were going to be okay, and I wasn't worried about feeling less than other people. You know, I felt like you know I'm okay. I, you know, I'm I'm equal to everybody else because you know when I was sober, I, I just I never felt like I fit in. You know, in one way or another, I, I just felt different from everybody else, and that's just the quality quality or characteristic of most alcoholics we, the NAA they say we, we think we're terminally unique <laughs> and that mm-hmm. stuff is really just what mm-hmm. now, NAA they call alcoholic thinking or disease thinking you know we just, we just want to feel like we're different so we have an excuse to to drink and use to escape mm-hmm. feeling different because people don't like to feel you know different we all want to feel part of society and part of the normal groups
3: mm-hmm. um, it sounds like the alcohol was meeting a need for you in terms of um reducing anxiety and like feeling comfortable in your skin and so in that respect like hearing you explain your story um i think it's powerful because often for people who have not experienced this you might think well why do you why does someone have an addiction you know why can't they just stop but when you explain how this uh, met a need for you it makes a lot of sense
0: yeah I mean, I didn't realize it at the time. I just knew it made me feel good, and it made me mm-hmm. feel like um, that I was at least equal with my fears. And, and <laughs> sometimes it made me feel like I was better than them. You know, when, <laughs> when I drank or smoked weed, I felt like I could do anything. You know, yeah, and it mm-hmm. certainly gave me the courage to ask girls to dance with me after <laughs> junior high and high school dances. You know, because when I was sober, I was just a wallflower. But if I had a few drinks, with me I'm like, hey, you want to dance? I didn't care. You know.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah you, you mention in that same chapter that um, someone who's experienced addiction um, their mind is pre-wired for adrenaline and you you say that in pursuit of this mental hit um, you individuals you know kind of pursue increasingly dangerous thrill seeking behaviors and you kind of mention high cliff diving, bridge jumping, bike jumping, speeding, and um, something called car surfing. yeah yeah can you explain (laughs) that a bit yeah (laughs) okay yeah
0: you know I just uh I don't know, you know, I live in Los Angeles for the last 30 years now, but I grew up in West Virginia. I was born in Atlanta, Georgia. It was a small town. There wasn't a lot to do. And Back then, we still didn't even have the seatbelt laws, and uh, you know, me and my older brother, you know, when we were young, he was crazy, and I just went, you know, and I just went along with the ride. You know, whatever he said we're going to do, we're going to do. So, you know, there was this old bridge we used to go jump off of, and yeah, the car surfing we did in junior high school was, you know. It's, it's basically what you can picture you know one person's driving the other person's standing on top of the car and they just pr- progressively mm-hmm. keep going faster until you fall off <laughs> oh, <laughs> and wow. that, that was yeah. the thing is try to stay on as long as you can but uh eventually you always fell off because the driver would start you know taking turns fast you know we, we do it in parking lots usually sometimes we do it on neighborhood streets but uh yeah, that was not the greatest mm. of idea, you know, and then we'd laugh <laughs> when we fall and rolled off on the ground and the asphalt, you know, and had a few bumps and bruises, you know, when you're kids, mm. you can fall down and bounce back up pretty quick. Mm-hmm. But yeah, not, not very smart.
1: <laughs> yeah, you probably felt that kind of living on the edge was a bit of a freeing experience, which might, which might explain why you continue to do that at the time
0: yeah you know and uh well and also we were football players me and my older brother and uh, you know we just felt like it made us tougher like we could take hits and give hits stronger so Mm. we kind of you know we also used to put on our helmets and smash our heads in the lockers and then we take (laughs) off our helmet and smash our heads in the lockers we did a lot of stupid stuff i mean i i hope i don't have permanent brain damage but it's probably it's it's a possibility
2: (laughs) (laughs) right right yeah you you also mentioned that um You know, playing, you mentioned football. You also mentioned that it helped develop some mental toughness and, you know, something as an outlet to kind of help you get through, um, you know, some of this addiction. So, particularly, you mentioned that your coach, Kearns, was a. Was, a, was almost like a father figure at a very turbulent point in your life.
0: Yeah, he was actually my high school basketball coach. My, my football coaches cussed like sailors, and uh, <laughs> they were funny, funny in their own way, but they reminded me more of my dad because he would cuss at us when he was mad. But Coach Kearns never cussed. I mean, if you've seen the movie Hoosiers with Gene Hackman, he was like him, but like a Boy Scout, you know, and he was just amazing. And yeah, he took me in. That was my sophomore year in high school, and you know, it was a year and a half after my dad died. And, uh, it just, uh, it was great to have that, uh, to fall into. And also at that time I was riffing with my older brother more and he was like, he was a football star. I was an average football player. So, when, you know, but I became like better at basketball than him. And uh, I, you know, as a little brother, you enjoy being better than your older brother at something. And uh, I never thought it was going to be football because he was, you know, he played both sides, offense and defense, and he was just, you know, he was really good. And uh, so, I, I loved having basketball as something that I could be better than him, you know, and something that I could do, you know, different from what he did. I mean, we played ball together, you know. Many years, but, and when I got better him than him, that was a problem for him too. <laughs> as, as you, it's in the book. You probably read that part too. So.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. That on the topic of um, basketball, and we'll get to the Lakers at the end of the podcast. Yeah. But, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. So
0: twenty twenty is not all bad for LA, right?
1: Yeah. Some <laughs> you look at the, some of the positives, but yeah, the year before you um, started to teach um, full time. You mentioned that you kind of tore your acl while playing some basketball so and i know that you ended up needing to go on to have surgery to correct the problem Yes. and um the reason i'm bringing this up is because um you know the most common types of prescription drugs that were misused in 2017 were pain relievers mm-hmm. uh, and tranquilizer stimulants and sedatives and such and 1.7 million people age 12 and over um had a pain reliever use disorder so um, talk us through the process of you know hurting your knee having surgery and then being prescribed um i believe it was vicodin and how that turned into some kind of dependency
0: yeah um okay so i was age 22 and i was long-term subbing and i was uh let's see uh i hadn't been as um i guess diligent about my weight training routine as i had been because i you know i'd go to the gym and i be like weight room or basketball court and i just go straight to the basketball court and also i had been drinking more so i definitely cut back on the weight training and uh, i was out there playing mm-hmm. ball and uh you know they, i went down uh I, we stole the ball and i went down on a fast break and uh uh, you know, the guy overthrew the ball, so I ran as fast as I could to catch it, and I jump stopped, or I caught it and jump stopped. I made the layup, but when I landed, mm. my, my leg just, like, split in half, basically, is what it felt like.
1: Mm, and, uh, know you know,
0: and my knee made this huge pop, and mm. I fell to the ground, and it hurt like hell, and it swole up, and it ended up, I tore my ACL, and, uh, you know, I, I, I eventually had to get surgery about, a you know, a few weeks later. It took a little while to get the, mm. you know, see a specialist and get it all set up. And then after the surgery, um, yeah, they prescribed me the Vicodin and uh, yeah, I was in a lot of pain. I remember when I came out of the surgery, I don't know if they gave the medication right. Because when I came out of the surgery, I felt like an axe was sticking out of my leg. And I was like, I didn't mm. expect there to be so much pain. I expected to be on some nice, heavy drugs and not be feeling it. And uh, mm-hmm. so they gave me that mm-hmm. and made the pain go away. And then I, I clearly remember, because at this point, my drinking I used to think, had really progressed. And uh, I was a daily drinker and a daily pot smoker. And the bottle said, warning, drinking alcohol with these pills may intensify the effects. And for me, a Mm -hmm. little light bulb just flashed. I'm like, yes, you know, as an addict, alcoholic, intensify effects. That means we Mm -hmm. must do that, you know? Uh. A normal person would see that and say, I'm not gonna drink alcohol. But an alcoholic, an addict says, hey, this is gonna enhance the effect. I love the effect already, let's let's, let's go for that. And so that's the first Mm -hmm. thing I did when I got home is like, I remember it was a year after I graduated from college and some of my buddies who were a year younger than me in college were having a graduation party because it's like in May. And uh, I went to that party this, like the day after I had surgery with Vicodin and alcohol and you know, the, the doctor did say to try and put weight on your leg as soon as possible after the surgery. And I was up dancing with like my leg in a full leg cast <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> because oh, I wow. couldn't feel anything because yeah. I, I took, you know, more than the, just the one Vicodin for every four hours. I took like two or three and <laughs> drank a lot. And yeah, I went through that prescription really fast, you know, because you build up the tolerance to Vicodin really fast and I was popping mm. more than you should. And I really loved the way it felt. And uh, I ran through all four prescriptions. And then I, you know, was looking, you know, my little brother had a friend, you could get it, you know, black market or whatever. So I was, you know, since I didn't get any more through my, my doctor, I got it that mm. way. And that lasted for probably about six months before uh, my, basically my connection to the Vicodin had moved away and I didn't have a connection anymore. And, mm. But yeah, that was definitely, I didn't realize that at the time, you know, but uh, looking back as I've done 12 step inventory and lots of therapy, I was, I was, I definitely had a Vicodin addiction phase there. And probably would have continued if i had ac- more access to it <laughs>
3: um what strikes me is how you were introduced to it in such a routine way of you know just a post op um normal mm. pain relief and how other factors in your life too led it to led that for that to become a much bigger issue than maybe you had even thought it could could have been and so yeah it shows that it doesn't really mean that you know you're seeking this it just happened to you and how could you have stopped that you didn't know so
0: yeah and I did end up using it a few times here and there over the next few years when I could get a hold of it you know I ended up using a lot more um Drugs, because I reached a point um, where marijuana just didn't have the effect um, that it used to have. It just seemed like no matter how much I smoked, I just couldn't get high like I wanted to. And I was even smoking like you know the chronic and the Kush and the really good good weed we have. Well, I have it everywhere, but you know Mm -hmm. um, that California is known for. And uh, you know, so then I I started. That's when I started doing cocaine and eventually methamphetamine, and things really spiraled. You know, after Mm -hmm. that.
3: Mm -hmm. But all this time, you were able to still maintain um, your other responsibilities, you know, you graduated from college, you were subbing. And so I wonder how you were able to still perform in the other areas of your life while also um, battling with these substance use issues.
0: Yeah, uh, man. (sighs) I don't know how I did it either looking back I just know that my parents you know they raised me to um, you know do your work first and play second and uh, you know if we didn't get A's and B's we'd get whippings. so I always got A's to make sure I didn't get any whippings. and uh, you know by the time my senior year of college rolled around I really was um, you know I didn't get as good grades my senior year as I did the other years because I was drinking and using a lot more but then when I started teaching, um, I found that if I drank on school nights and went into a middle school classroom with a hangover with a, you know, 35 middle school kids, that just did not work out very well Mm. because the middle school kids are very talkative and very loud and very energetic and when you got a headache or head hangover and your head's throbbing that just is a recipe for disaster so Mm -hmm. i managed to not drink on school nights and i would only Mm -hmm. smoke weed on school nights so because i didn't wake up with a hangover if i just smoked weed but then on the weekends i would binge drink and that was my cycle for the next Mm -hmm. few years until i actually stopped teaching to go to my first rehab And then that began a a few year cycle of me going in and out of rehab and in and out of various employment.
2: Yeah, you you talk about your experiences, um, you know, with different substances. um, And you also talk about how you were going to AA meetings and, you know, taking part of the 12 step inventory. Um, But I want to talk about the relapse rate. So, the relapse rate for substance use disorders is estimated to be anywhere around 40% to 60%, and this is similar to the rates of relapse for other chronic diseases such as hypertension or asthma. However, we do want to emphasize that addiction is considered a highly treatable disease, and that recovery is attainable. About 10% of American adults who are at least 18 years old say that they are in recovery from an alcohol or drug abuse issue. So Tim, can you talk a little bit about your experience with relapse?
0: Uh, Yeah, sure. Um, I also, just on that note you were talking about, uh, one of the things I learned in my, I think my second rehab is that um, our accounts, one of our therapists or doctors there told us that, I think it's the American Medical Association, said in order for anything to be classified as as a disease, it just has to meet three criteria, which is it has to be chronic, progressive, and fatal. And uh, Mm. up until that Mm -hmm. point, you know, I didn't realize I had a disease. I just thought alcoholism was a sign of weakness um and when he labeled it mm-hmm. that way i was able to kind of get my head around it. i'm like okay i've got a disease you know a diabetic has to take insulin for their disease you know different people have mm-hmm. different treatments so that kind of opened my mind to you know at least you know accepting that it's a disease didn't mean that mm-hmm. it was that i was just weak and mentally weak I, you know I, there's a, there's a deeper issue here a, a genetic issue i believe now um and to answer your question with the relapse um alcoholism Mm -hmm. and addiction it's just you know they say it's a cunning baffling and powerful disease and when I first started going to meetings it was um, the year my son was born in 1999 Um, and uh, the first meeting I went to I just didn't identify what the speaker was talking about um, because the speaker had tried to uh, commit suicide they jumped off a bridge but they survived and they were permanently in a wheelchair and up until that point at age 25 I had not been um, suicidal Two years later, I would threaten suicide. Um, you know, but I went through these periods of sobriety where I'd get thirty days, and um, I'd feel like, hey, I didn't drink for thirty days. I deserve one drink, but it was never just one drink. You know, and then I'd relapse, and it, you know, maybe last, you know, a couple of weeks. Um, usually, my relapses lasted anywhere from two weeks to two or three months. And then I'd get back into meetings or get back into treatment. And, uh, you know, a few times I got like 90 days or six months. And then I'd, again, I'd have this thought, hey, you've been sober 90 days. You've been sober six months. You could just smoke one joint. But it was never just one joint or one. Or as soon as I had one, I'm like, well, you had one. You may as well have another. And that's, we have this saying in the AA and any rooms it's one is too many and a thousand is never enough, you know? And that was always the case for me. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And, and you did mention that in your book that, you know, after these relapse events, you often, you know, had a lot of arguments and fights with your oh, wife yeah. about, you know, the kids and, you know, just your your life in general. So how, how did, how did kind of these two relate to each other, your relapse events and, you know, conversations with your wife and events? Wow, I mean,
0: how did they relate to each other? That's a, a very complicated and difficult question. <laughs> and my wife, I must say, my wife is an amazing, amazing woman. She works a very strong Al-Anon program. And I can't say enough about, you know, the Al-Anon and Neer-Anon programs for the family members of alcoholics and addicts Um, Mm. They help them learn how to deal with their alcoholic or addict, whether they're, you know, in recovery or still suffering from the disease. And, uh, you know, if it wasn't for my wife, I don't think I would have, you know, and having kids especially, I would have ever really felt like I needed to get sober because during my whole cycle of drinking and using uh, most of the, uh, until I got close to getting sober I never thought I was hurting anybody but myself but Mm -hmm. my wife you know we get into these arguments and she'd be like you need to choose between her name's Mariah Mariah or marijuana, because I was just using marijuana <laughs> all the day. You know, I'd wake up and I'd smoke. I'd, at lunch, I'd smoke. I was just smoking, you know, all throughout the day. And I, she'd be like, you got to choose between Mariah and marijuana. And I would be such a smart ass because I was still in the throes of my disease. I'd be like, I want mariah Because <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to have my cake mm. and eat it too. You know, and every time I'd relapse, mm. I'd try to hide it from her. So, you mm. know, I was living this double life where like, I'd say I was going to work out or, you know, I'd say I was going to a meeting, but, you know, I was going to get high with my little brothers or some friends, and then, you know, in my car, I kept like cologne and eye drops and deodorant, or I'd go to the gym and take a shower and try and get the smell of the smoke and, you know, the bloodshot eyes and everything away, you know, but she could usually tell. it was, that was a lot of work I don't I do not miss doing that It was a lot of work trying to fool her and you know she felt like I didn't love her because I was lying to her about it but I just mm-hmm. you know I didn't want to hurt her because I knew if she found out I was you know relapsed and was drinking music again, it was gonna hurt her you know because she thought if I just mm-hmm. got sober you know the relationship would get better uh, she found through Al-Anon that there were some things she needed to work on for her own self and personal growth <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, yeah I'm, I'm glad that you you um You share this story because often when we talk about, you know, substance use, addictions, mental health, we talk about the person that is directly affected because they have the diagnosis, but we often miss the toll it takes on their family, right? Like you mentioned, um, your kids and your wife, they're very important to you. So you're, a lot of what you do, you're in a conflict of um, meeting your your own emotional needs as well as not kind of disappointing your wife with your behavior. So it's just that constant struggle of, trying to do the right thing but also uh being able to address the trauma you're experiencing inside and it sounds like that's like you said it's a very complicated issue
0: yeah yeah that's why they say alcoholism and addiction are a family disease you know because it affects the whole family yeah there were some rough years from 1999 to 2004 i I call those my wonder years (laughs) or my Mm. dark my dark years because that's when i was just in and out of the rooms constantly coming back taking newcomer chips i got so tired of standing up taking those newcomer chips hopefully i never have to do that again
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> this concludes part one of our discussion with tim davis author of the book tripolar the story of a bipolar triathlete stay tuned for the second half of our discussion as we explore how tim uses passion for running and triathlons to kickstart his journey towards healing and recovery thank you for listening to the public Health insight podcast your go-to space for informative conversations inspiring community action If you enjoy our content and would like to stay up to date, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. To learn more about our community initiatives and how you can support us, visit our website at thepublichealthinsight.com. Join the PHI community
0: and let's make Public Health Viral.